Hey there, I'm Christopher Schoenwald, and welcome to Life As A, a show intently focused on helping people find their professional pathway by exploring and unearthing the details of jobs from around the world. For listeners who have been tuning in regularly, you've probably noticed I've got this little spiel off the top where I'm asking people to go over to YouTube. I have a channel over there, Life As A, dot, dot. And basically, it's just highlights from the main audio versions, from the podcast versions of these talks that I have with these great guests. And the reason I'm plugging it so hard is that I think this content really does matter. And I want to get it in front of people. I want to get in front of youth, people that are still undecided, who just don't know what they want to do with their lives. And I think this platform, you know, One YouTube, offers that opportunity kind of get up close and personal with some of these guests in a different format. And if you're just not into audio, if you're not into podcasting as a whole, that's fine. That's okay. Well, you can still digest the content in a different way. I would encourage you, if you do know somebody who's looking for that career, looking for some ideas, direct them over to lifeasa.dot over on YouTube. You know, if they're into videos, they might just find what they're looking for over there. And while you are there, hey, I would always appreciate a like or subscribe. It's the best way to let that algorithm know that the content matters, that it should be put in front of others. Well, I do thank you for letting me ask this of you, but I think it's about time we get into today's episode. When you think of a behavioral scientist, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Maybe you think of somebody as a professor within the walls of academia. Maybe you think of a practitioner helping individuals. Well, that is what makes this episode today really, really interesting. Is we're going to get into this world of behavioral science and all of the other possibilities that exist within it. And we're going to do so by way of this conversation with this exceptional, exceptional guest. Her name is Dr. Abby Morono. And she is a renowned nonverbal communication expert who, yes, did spend some time within academia, and she transitioned that into the private sector. And she works for this company called Social Engineer, which unto itself is really, really interesting. And we break it all down, what that company does, her involvement with it, and some of her other activities, which involve being a keynote speaker on the topic of behavioral science, as well as how she leverages her skills and abilities to help out with this really wonderful nonprofit organization. Beyond all that, we get into conversations in which Dr. Morono explains how she's helped accelerate her career by way of some strategic decisions along the way. We also break down some of the rewards, some of the challenges of her work. We even get treated to a look at Dr. Morono's thoughts on the world of AI and how that may be shifting and changing things around within behavioral science and the field of social engineering. Finally, listeners will be treated to an inside look at her new book, which will be coming out very shortly. And yeah, what that process was like, some of the challenges, some of the opportunities that that presented for her. So all up, we do cover a lot of ground in this conversation, and I'm really excited to share it with you. So let me more formally introduce you to her, and we can get started. Dr. Abby Morono is both a scientist and a practitioner in the field of human behavior. After completing her PhD in psychology and behavior analysis, she became a professor of psychology at academic institutions by the age of 23. In 2022, the U.S. Department of State awarded her an O-1 visa for extraordinary abilities in the sciences, recognizing her as being in the top 1% of her field internationally. Now, she currently serves as the Director of Education at Social Engineer LLC. She also co-hosts the Social Engineer podcast and runs a mental health-focused blog column for the Innocent Lives Foundation. Abby is an active member of internationally recognized research groups and was honored as the Reviewer of the Year in 2020. In addition to her academic and professional accomplishments, she is a sought-after keynote speaker, expert advisor, trainer, and coach. As well as this, Abby has recently become a first-time author, and her book will be available in all major bookstores in 2024. And she currently resides in Orlando, Florida. So with all that noted, here's my conversation with Dr. Abby Morono. 
Yeah, so welcome to the program. How are you doing today, Dr. Morono? Thank you for having me. I'm doing well yourself. Yeah, really good. I'm excited for this talk for a number of reasons. I think the work that you do is absolutely fascinating. I found myself going down this rabbit hole when I was, you know, researching for this and putting some questions together. Really, really interesting stuff here. Thank you. Yeah, it's a line of work not a lot of people know exists. Yeah, we were just speaking pre-recording about how I misidentified some of the work that you do, at least initially. And you're, you're right. Uh, that's, that's also part of the intrigue, quite frankly. But I do have this first segment lined up, and it's something called Coloring Wikipedia. And as my listeners know, it's basically a segment where I just read off a definition of what the guest does or you know, the field of study that they're involved in. And I actually went with two definitions here. I have one, behavioral science. And this one's actually coming from the job site, Indeed. I'll read that off in a second. And I have one more, social engineering, which is the one that comes from Wikipedia. They are a bit wordy, I will forewarn you. So here we go, behavioral science. Behavioral science primarily deals with human action and human behavior in society. A behavioral scientist conducts experiments, surveys, and interviews to observe, test, and develop theories on how human behavior affects personal decisions, thoughts, actions, and interactions. There's the first one, behavioral science. Next up, social engineering. In the context of information security, social engineering is the psychological manipulation of people into performing actions or divulging confidential information, a type of confidence trick for the purpose of information gathering, fraud, or system access. It differs from a traditional con in that it is often one of many steps in a more complex fraud scheme. It has also been identified as any act that influences a person to take an action that may or may not be in their best interests. First take, what do you think of those? They sound good. Similar to reality of what we do. Behavioral science is so broad. Uh, I am a behavioral scientist in my role at Social Engineer. So I, I study human beings. Now, I'm a researcher. I conduct experiments. I look at the psychological mechanisms that underpin human behavior. And then when it comes to social engineering, that second definition was one created by my boss here at Social Engineer, oh, really? Chris Hadnagy. Yeah, the influence is an act um, that may or may not be in their best interest. And the reason why he coined this new term is because that original definition is very negative. It focuses on the manipulation side of social engineering. And that's what you do if you are a social engineer in the illegal sense of actually committing fraud. Now you have professional social engineers who run social engineering tests on people's human security network. So a company could be, say, a big tech company or a bank. They're at risk of fraud. They're at risk of vectors, which is the phishing, vishing and smishing, which are terms meaning, you know, email phishing, voice phishing, so a fraudulent phone call or smishing a text message. If an employee gets one of those things and it has a malicious link attached and they click it, now all the data is at risk. So you need to understand how to protect against those. And what we do as social engineers is we run those kind of fake tests. We run it as simulated tests, but we don't use the manipulation tactics that the actual con artists will use. We don't use things like fear. We don't use anger. We don't create negative emotion to get what we need. We use things like cooperation enhancement and principles of trust. Because if I use shame to get information from you, how can I teach you to be better? How can I teach you to be more aware? It's not going to help you. So what we can do is use professional social engineers to access that information and get through the human security network using techniques that won't psychologically harm those individuals. And obviously we don't just, you know, call up random banks and do it. We we have contracts with them. They hire us to do it. If I just called you up now and pretended to be the bank or pretended to be, you know, I'm the window cleaner, I need to book, where do you leave your key? Things like that. You know, that would be fraud. That would be highly illegal. We have contracts with those that we do that with. 
Oh, how interesting. I mean, this is exactly what I was speaking of. You know, this is the level of intrigue that I have. And I think a lot of people, once once you kind of open that can of worms, like there's so many different areas to kind of explore yeah. within this. And I can see how it'd be really, really rewarding, like almost endless in terms of what you can be yeah. learning, what you can be involved with. We're going to get to this later on as technology evolves. It opens up a whole different set of challenges for organizations and uh, and ways of kind of, you know, preventing some of these issues, I suppose, and it involves the type of work that you do. Yeah, I think impersonation intrigues people. So part of the role of social engineering is to physically get into buildings. So if you need to get into someone's computer network and you need to plant a USB stick, how do you get through the door? How do you get into that really important conference room or that private meeting? And that's what social engineers will do. They'll go in with a fake persona and get into the location that they need to get into. And our team do that. We're hired to break into places, get into, you know, locked doors, access people's name badges and security passes and plant USBs. Obviously, we don't plant malicious um, links or anything like that. But that's the bit that is so interesting because you see this kind of work on TV. I remember Chris had Nagy's book and the first chapter starts with this heist almost that he did. And at the end, you know, he was working with law enforcement. And it was so intriguing. And you think, wow, this is genuinely people's real careers. Yeah, yeah. Well, I just had visions of that film that came out several years ago, the uh, DiCaprio film, Catch Me If You Can, which I think was, yeah, based around a true story of how he's impersonating all these yeah. different people and professions and yeah, doing probably much of what you're speaking of right now. Really quickly, in terms of, I guess, some of these contracts that you have with these organizations and you are running these tests, you are, like you just said, trying to get in, planting these, you know, bogus, um, losing my mind here, uh, USBs, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> it's early here in Japan, these USBs. You know, as far as that goes, like what would be a success rate for you? Are you able to say that? Or like how how easy or how difficult is that typically? It would depend on what the client wants. Mm -hmm. So, for example, say a flag, which is we collect flags from targets. A flag might be someone's home address, but a different client might say, well, we don't care about that. A flag to us is a password or a flag to us okay. is a social security number. So they will determine that. And it's the same with the physical break-ins. You know, some might not want planting USB. Some might just want you to get into a certain location. So depending on what they want will depend on yeah. what's considered a success to us. Um, and we recently created the first ever vishing report, which talks about the compromise rates. And it is really, I mean, our compromise rates are really high. People aren't very secure when it comes to the human network because we're naturally so trusting. So to get someone to do something you want them to do actually isn't that difficult, which is why we need these simulated attacks in, you know, without using the manipulation to train you to be more aware, to have better cyber hygiene and to recognize that it's not just the email that's a threat. You know, it is that phone call, it is the text message and it is someone coming into a location that could have some sensitive data. Yeah, yeah. Well, quite frankly, these days is a combination of several of these different techniques that are being paired up together to really break down someone's sense of, you know, of what is acceptable or yep. what is, you know, legit or not. It would seem at least, I mean, at least within the media, when you're reading these things, that it's getting that much more you know, advanced, that much more, you know, thorough. Oh, these... absolutely. It's massively on the rise. Yeah, yeah. And you'd think as well, I mean, I, I would assume at least that we are getting used to it. I mean, it's common knowledge now that these types of tactics are out there, but it's somewhat surprising to hear just how simple it is you know, or relatively speaking for some of these bad actors to still be gaining as much access as what they're getting. Yeah, I think because we have such good technological security, we protect our stuff, our systems, that we think that, you know, I've got this great security system, everything's fine. Well, actually, the biggest security risk is the person. So we're not really training the human network. We're training how to use the technology but if it's someone picking up the phone and giving a password what does it matter if you have great security on your laptop there it is there it is all right well maybe you could shift over into another segment here a day in the life 
And uh, maybe in the most generalized sense, we could hear, you know, some of the activities that you are involved with, you know, at Social Engineer, uh, being the director of education. Yes. So sadly, my role may not be as exciting as the listeners may expect from our last segment, because I'm the director of education here. I am a behavioral scientist. I'm not a professional social engineer. I work with them and I work as the director of education here. So it might sound boring to some people, but I love my job and I love the work that I get to do. And if I'm not doing speeches, and we'll talk about that later, most of what I do is behind a desk. I spend 90% of my time behind a desk and my job can vary. So I create courses, both in person and online. Everything that is education or science-based, I've created it. I have my hands in it. We recently just finished creating our first ever audio course, and it will be an audio course on information elicitation, which I'm very excited about. And I also host a podcast, which is teaching concepts within the realm of psychology. Uh, I do internal training, so I make sure all of the courses that we have, all of the training that we do is based on rigorous scientific principles and as science is constantly evolving we need to be constantly evolving with that so I have a a whole day every week dedicated to my own research so reading academic papers making sure that I'm up to date with the literature on everything that we need to know as well as conducting my own research I conduct research internationally and I'm a member of many research groups as well as run my own research group and then I write blogs I do a lot of interviews, like I recently did um, Forbes Breaking News, um, and I've done a few with them. Um, And then, of course, I do things like speaking. So I have various topics which people will hire us out to do talks and speeches. And that's always fun, getting to go to different locations. Uh, I recently was in Ohio doing a talk, which... There wasn't a huge amount to do in Ohio other than the talk, but it was great to be there. Um, And I fly to Massachusetts in two weeks to do another talk, which is, again, it's always really exciting because you get to network um, and run events. Um, And then, obviously, we spoke prior to this. uh, I write a book on the side and I do some volunteering with um, the Innocent Lives Foundation. So I do juggle a lot. And as I'm saying that, people are probably thinking that seems too much. And that's more than a job's worth. So my career is my life. It really is like who I am. And you can be a behavioral scientist and not work those same hours. And you can be a behavioral scientist and just focus on some of those elements without doing everything because it can, when you hear that, feel overwhelming and think there's no way that I could juggle those different tasks. But that's not a role that you would have to take. That's because my career is my hobby as well as my full-time job yeah it just screams passion to me when I hear all those things you know like that as you said I mean that that is a lot you know for some it might be considered a lot but when your your heart's totally into that and uh you're you're totally intrigued by it and can't get enough of it yeah you could probably be be adding a few more things in there if you really wanted to be and the one thing that you you said earlier on was that this might appear a little bit boring as opposed to what the work of a social engineer does. But when I was listening to this, I was just struck by the thought, like, especially in terms of that day when you're devoting yourself to reading academic papers and you're keeping up with the science behind it all. I mean, what's more exciting than that, quite frankly? Like, you are fucking... you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think so. Like, you're right on the edge of it all, you know? And as I said earlier, I mean, as technology is evolving... Our human behaviors are adapting to all of these things. So the, the the most recent reports coming out or research papers coming out on that would be interesting to somebody like yourself or anyone who's involved or you know has an interest in that field. I, I, I couldn't think of anything more exciting to be involved with if that's Thank what you're you. aligned towards. Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, it's really a blessing that I get to learn for a career because I'm an educator. I love educating. And I love seeing people enter a room that think that psychology isn't interesting. And then leaving that room, realizing there's actually so much more to it than I thought. And that is what drives me. When I see that passion spark 
in students, in mentees, in, in the corporate world too. I see it so much in the corporate world where people have been in careers for a long time and they never thought that psychology was important because they, they see psychology as maybe like a mental health focus and not related to their job, even though they interact with people. A lot of people don't recognize the power of that understanding. And then when you do these talks and you do this training and then you see that switch and you start to see in them a little flame of interest. And that's what it's all about, because learning for a living is something we all do. No matter what it is you do, we all learn for a living. So being able to be part of that actively and educating and sparking that interest, it's amazing. Yeah, yeah. And having like specific time devoted to that as well. I think, you know, that, that's one of the things, you know, a lot of us are learning in our daily lives, in our careers and whatnot, but we might yeah. not be consciously aware of that and yeah. get caught up with several other things. And, and a lot of it slips by perhaps, but when it's built into your structure, I think that's, you know, ever so exciting. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I do kind of want to rewind a little bit here and go into your past in this next segment, Pathways. And the aim of the segment is to kind of show listeners, you know, how people make their way into their present line of work. But before we get into the nuts and bolts of that, I mean, you yourself, I'm guessing you yeah, were just, you know, when you were younger, just curious and, you know, inquisitive by nature. I'm, I'm assuming, I'm guessing here, would, would that be an accurate assessment? Yes, absolutely. I think as a scientist, there's always one question on your lips, and it's why. You know, it's just a desire to understand. And that has propelled me through my career, but it was also the step that made me want to be in this career. You know, wanting to understand why. Now, how did that lead into the work that you're doing right now? So it's an interesting one. So when I entered university. My original goal was to be in the FBI. I watched a lot of lie to me and CSI and I wanted to be a human lie detector. And I did my first academic papers in the field of deception detection. And I had this preconceived idea of what forensic psychology looked like. So when I entered university, I had that craving to understand. So I went to one of my lecturers with an idea. And his name is Dr. David Keatley. He's an incredible mentor, professor, and person all around. And I gave him this idea, and I think it was a couple of weeks into my first class at university as an undergrad. So I'd just started, and I was in the course of psychology. And I gave him this idea, and he said to me, have you told this to anybody? And I said, no, not anybody yet. And he said, well, don't, because it's not been done. So if you want to do it, I'll work with you and help you create this and we'll turn it into an academic study. So I said, absolutely, I'd love to. And he helped me so much. And we had ended up having a contact with Joe Navarro. And we were building on some of his theories in a very unique way. And we got in contact with him and he agreed to work with us. So this person that I'd admired in the field, this ex-FBI agent, this nonverbal communication expert and the paper within nonverbal communication, he had reached out and said, yes, absolutely. I'd love to work on this with you. So that really fueled the interest as well. Oh yeah. But I still had the goal of, I want to be FBI. This was just an interest. It was, it was never my goal to be an academic at that point. I really wanted to be a practitioner, but in creating that research, you come in with a question of, I wonder why this works. When we finished the paper, I discovered something. You know, everything that you publish is because something new has been discovered. And the second that paper got published, that was it for me. That goal of FBI, I knew it would never be a reality because I was hooked. I was just hooked on research. And then I... I dedicated all of my free time outside of studying for my degree to do more research. And I said to him, do you have any more ideas? And I would constantly come to him and then Professor David Clark, who worked with David a lot. And the three of us would have little coffee meetings and talk about nonverbals and 
Joe ended up being in another paper with us. And then we'd started working with FBI agents currently in the field using their data. And the more research I did, the more questions I had. You know, the more you discover, there's that saying that the more you know, the less you know. And there was just so many questions. And I realized that I want to dedicate the rest of my life to asking and answering questions because everything has an answer. We just don't know what the answer is. It's the same in every science. You know, we may not understand it yet, but one day we could. And the answer is there. We just need to use the right methods to figure it out. And that, to me, it's so exciting, especially when it comes to human beings, because humans are so different and unique, yet we have these underlying principles in which apply to all of us. Things that are the same and we can predict behavior quite accurately in many different settings. And I think that's so fascinating. So I had pushed through with this interest and I never did my master's. I got a scholarship to do my PhD. I was very lucky. It was a PhD of my dreams. It was all, it felt like it had been handcrafted. But before I got that PhD, I'd been rejected from many other PhDs I applied for. So it's easy to think, wow, you know, that's such a quick, easy route, you know, no speed bumps. But it was a lot of rejections to get to that point. And then the one after I had given up on the idea of doing a PhD, this scholarship was offered. And then it was just, like I said, felt like it was handcrafted. So I I started doing my PhD, continued doing research on the side, set up my life as if I was going to be an academic. And then while I was still finishing off my PhD, I did have a very good portfolio of extras. Like I'd done a lot of conferences. I'd done a lot of research. I'd worked with a lot of big names. So I applied for a lectureship and I became a professor while I was still finishing off my PhD. I mean, it just seemed like, you know, this is the dream. This is everything. This is where I'm going to stay. But academia for me was not what I expected it to be. Okay. Once you and got in. Yeah. I thought that I would be surrounded by similar minds, similar passions, because I go to sleep excited to wake up and work. And I've always been that way. And I hate when you're so tired from working that your eyes hurt and you need to stop. I hate that moment because there's so much more I want to do. And I've always been this way when it comes to psychology. And I felt that draining from me because I was around a lot of procedure. Everything felt very procedural and The academic system is very harsh. It's very, very tough and not tough and competitive. It's just very tough. It, I just felt that it was more about almost like a pyramid scheme. It felt almost like we're just providing a service to students that didn't really want the service because it was like this, they were just kind of running through the system because now it feels like there's so much pressure on people to get degrees. And I don't think that that's the right way to go. Academia isn't for everybody. If you're not really passionate about what you're doing, then you don't need a degree in it if it's not what you want to do in your future. But I think a lot of people go into academia because they feel pressured. They feel like they need to. And for me, it didn't feel like there was this drive and passion that I was, I thought I'd be surrounded by it. Some of the rigidity I, as well, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking. With yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was, it just didn't fuel me the way that I thought that it would. And I was in a university that was very teaching focused. And I thought that it would be challenging because when you're a student, you think this is very difficult material. But by the time you're a professor, the material is not difficult anymore, but you teach it consistently. And I was just getting really tired of teaching things that I didn't find difficult. And you want to teach more complex things, but you can't do that because you're in a curriculum and you have to teach what they need to know. And the research is where you get that stimulation. But because it was a teaching-focused university, there wasn't enough research there for me. And I wasn't surrounded by enough researchers that 
wanted to publish for the right reasons. Again, it felt very procedural. You had to publish for your career. You had to review for your career. It was never about that finding out why. And I started to go to sleep not wanting to get up for work. And that's an and, alarm bell for you, it sounds like, or would have yeah, been. Yeah, that was the alarm for me. Then I realized I can't stay in academia because I'm actually losing my love for the science. And I'd started working with Joe Navarro, and I'd, I'd said to him that I'd created this research group because I thought that that would refuel my passion to run a research group to really be part actively of creating new science and bringing together like-minded people in the field. And I brought him in the research team and he said, yes. And him and I slowly became like best friends. We ended up like Skyping every day, just talking about nonverbal communication. And we would just, we'd send each other's papers and then sit and just talk for hours about the research. And I realized that the love I was looking for is because I want to be around people that are hungry for that knowledge. A lot of students are very hungry for the knowledge, but the knowledge that I wanted to teach was at a very different level than what I was teaching at university. And there's a difference between students wanting the knowledge and then people in industry, because people in industry wanting that knowledge, they want it because it's vital for their careers. So you see this real hunger to learn in a very different sense. And I had begun moving from the dark psychology into more positive psych. So I moved away from things like FBI and serial killers and that field into more how to create cooperation and how to create trust. And in working with Joe, he introduced me to his way of life. You know, he works in corporate. He teaches corporate, he trains, and I sat in some of his training, and it was just the atmosphere in the room. It was that so hunger that experienced, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was not what I expected, and I realized that I wanted to bring what I do in academia into corporate. And that sounds really simple, but there is this big divide between academia and industry where they don't really communicate and they don't often see the value in each other. And the more I worked with practitioners, the more I realized, wow, what you have is so important and it's so different than what I have. And imagine what we could do if we worked together rather than me just staying in this academic bubble and you just staying in this bubble of industry. What if we united our forces? And then he got me to do podcasts and he got me to do some more media and then from that, me really pushing being out on the media, I was introduced to Chris Hadnagy. And that's when he was really interested in my work. And he had the same mindset of he's industry. He's only ever been industry. He has no interest in being a scientist, just like I have no interest in being a practitioner. But he wanted a scientist to facilitate the learning that they do and to facilitate the teachings that they do. And it was just this perfect match of, he sent me this description and said, do you happen to know anybody that does these things? And I said to him, Chris, I can tell you with certainty that nobody does what you want except from me. And I know that because it's the title of my thesis. He sent me this question and said, they need like to know how to use nonverbal communication to influence information listation and understand the psychology behind it. And I said, the title of my thesis was using nonverbal communication to influence information elicitation. And what were the psychological underpinnings? So I said, there's no one better suited for this than me. So hire me. And he did. And that's how I got into the industry. So it was a bit of, it was a straight line down from, yep, this is everything I want. For seven years, I headed in that direction. Or for six years, I headed in that direction. Straight line, everything was carved into this perfect academic bubble and this academic future and I'd already been offered a promotion in the job that I had I'd created academic courses so my life seemed very set mm -hmm. just took this sudden turn and so now I work as an academic in industry yeah it's really interesting I mean a couple of things stand out to me in listening to that I mean one is 
you know, you don't know what you don't know, I suppose, right? It sounds like to me, at least initially, like you had this vision, this dream of working for the FBI, right? And that's everything that you were going for. And then once you immerse yourself within some of these other worlds and you learn different things, there's things that you just can't necessarily pick up before actually getting involved in, in, in the work that you're doing. And, you know, if you're self-reflective and you're considering these things about who you are and what you like and where you want to be and you keep an open mind, that's where, you know, different avenues or pathways sort of like open up, you know, and for lack of a better word. And it yeah. sounds like to me, that's what you were doing. You're just discovering, okay, well, this is something I want to keep pursuing, but on my present course, my present pathway, it's not going to allow me to do so. So if I shift over here, or if I'm, you know, open to, to meeting these types of people and learning from them and, and just taking on new perspectives, it can open up a whole different set of options. And it seems like to me that you just kept progressing through that and learning more and more about what's driving you, you know, and what is going to be fulfilling for you. And it's interesting as well how academia wasn't filling that need. I mean, I think a lot of people would assume like that would be the perfect world if you're interested in research and science. And, and you'd think, you know, at least like just quickly analyzing it, you'd think that would be the perfect world for, for somebody like yourself. It's a bit disheartening to hear that it isn't in the sense that like academia is failing. I think a lot of people like yourself who, you know, could be contributing there. But on the other hand, you know, into that world of corporate and whatnot, you're right. I mean, it makes complete sense where th that type of information could potentially in the, in the right hands or in the right organizations be devoured, be, you know, accepted by people who really, really want to, to learn from it because of the benefits that it can uh, you know, certainly present. So really interesting, I think, for a lot of people, young people themselves who are you know, looking at this field or, or any career for that matter, I think keeping an open mind on some of these things. And quite frankly, it fits the, uh, the, the segment perfectly. I mean, the segment pathways is almost always squiggly in nature, these lines of you know, where people think yeah. they're going to go and where they ultimately end up. Very, very different. So yeah, yeah. you make a really good point about academia has failed people almost because it's not that the academics themselves aren't passionate and don't love what they do it's that they don't get the opportunity to express that because the system it works in you have a certain amount of hours that you have to do each week and each month and each year and you don't get enough time for each task so tasks that may take five hours you're not really given five hours for so you don't get to do it to your best ability. And everything is just about getting it done because the academics are so overloaded. So even when they step into that field, passionate and driven, it's so hard to maintain that because it's so forced. And for me, I recognize that I have the privilege of my time is my time. So I could maintain my love and my passion. I mean, even I felt that it was draining from me because I could work those extra hours, because I could get up early and finish work late and work my weekends. If I had a child or if I had a partner, I wouldn't have that advantage of being able to get ahead. And I shouldn't have to have that. So for people that do have families and other responsibilities, it was just getting through the day by any means possible, because the work was so overwhelming and you don't get enough time. There really just isn't enough time in the day. And the system has changed. Like when you look back 10 years, the same tasks you got less time for, but they take longer. And how does that work? Right. You know, it's it has become this system of one in, one out. You know, just really trying to get everybody at university and get everything done. And it has stopped nurturing academics. And it's also stopped nurturing students because the lecturers can't create the lessons that they want to because they don't get enough time. So it's not the people in the system that's the problem. There's a lot of hardworking, dedicated people that are just exhausted. And I've seen it kick out so many really dedicated scientists that have just said, I can't do it anymore because I don't feel like I'm being valued within academia. And I think when it comes to the pathways, people see it as black or white. They see it as either I know exactly what I want to do and I'm going to do this exact thing, or I have no idea and I'm going to be super flexible. But there is an in-between. 
you know, I knew what I wanted to do. I knew it was psychology. Just like with research, I always knew I loved nonverbals and I knew I loved the field of cooperation and forensic psychology. But within my research field, because I knew that I didn't want to take one route and only one route and then think, what if I'd taken a different route? So when you look at my publications, I have publications in counterterrorism, in serial killings, in cooperation, in mimicry, and all these things that you think that's so random. Why are you doing all these different fields? And for me, that was my way of testing the waters. Within this one field of psychology, I studied lots of different areas and did research in lots of different areas. I knew I loved nonverbals, but I didn't want to be completely, you know, shutter blind to everything else. I knew that I needed to have some flexibility and I ended up going down the route of nonverbals anyway, but I tried lots of different things on the way and that's perfectly okay to do. And people can do it with minors and majors. And if you get towards the end of a degree and think this actually isn't the degree that I want to do, we'll change it. You don't have to stick to that one path. You can change. And there is an in-between where you can know mostly where you want to be and what you want to do and still have an air of flexibility. It's not black or white when it comes to these things. Yeah, I really like that. A lot of great advice and uh, insight there for, for people who are, you know, perhaps conflicted by some of these thoughts or emotions as they're going through their education and, you know, even their own careers as well. You know, the different possibilities that are out there. I do want to shift over into this next segment here, a Q&A discovery. We can kind of just continue this back and forth. And in listening to the podcast that you're involved with, the Social Engineer Podcast, you know, I came to learn a great many things. And I also recall hearing about some of the work that you do for the nonprofit, the Innocent Lives Foundation, in which you and others help law enforcement solve particular cases and I'd be curious about some of those cases or the types of cases that you're involved with. And, and what is that like being involved in, in that type of nonprofit work? So the Innocent Lives Foundation is really an incredible nonprofit. It's so rewarding. Um, and they work to identify uh, anonymous child predators and help bring them to justice. So they're not a vigilante group. They identify the predators using their OSINT skills. So because it was founded by the CEO of Social Engineer, he had a very particular skill set. And open source intelligence gathering is a huge part of social engineering. So he applied that to helping save children that need protecting. Um, and they use that skills to identify predators and collect evidence of the attack or of the problem. And then they work with law enforcement. They hand off that evidence to law enforcement and then they educate the public. They don't go out and arrest the guy. They don't go out and trap him like you see in a lot of these or her. You see it in a lot of these videos. They work with law enforcement. They're not vigilantes. And we can't talk about the individual cases for security reasons. But I... I volunteer with them as an educator. So the final part of what they do is that I said, educating the public. So educating them on, say, child safety, how to keep your child safe. But what they didn't have also was a scientist. They didn't have anyone. They have a counselor and a clinical psychologist, but she's a practitioner. So she actually is a counselor. Her job isn't to be in the literature 24-7 like it is mine. So she has a very different role, a very important role, but different. So they needed someone to educate on the literature and the scientific basis of, okay, well, what next? Say you were a victim or say your child was a victim. How do you cope? How do we focus on mental health? They needed real understandings of those so they could help people. And when I heard about their mission, it just touched my heart completely because I think Child safety is something that every single person, unless you are a threat to children, every single person can agree is a top priority, even if you are not maternal. So I'm not someone who is naturally maternal. I have many cats and that's as far as it goes. They're my babies. But we love children. 
you how can you it's not human love nature, children? right? I think to care for somebody else, or at least it should be. Yeah. Yep. And to want to protect them and to see the amazing work they do and to be part of educating in the mental health that goes along with that has been extremely rewarding. So I recently started a blog column for them called The Doctor's Corner. And I talk about different issues surrounding child safety. So the effects on the parents, the effects on people around that, but also more widely mental health. So I wanted to touch on issues that people don't talk about. For example, I just did one called Frozen in the Face of Danger and talking about how sometimes when we're in a traumatic situation, we freeze and we don't fight back and we don't do anything to stop it. And that can lead to this idea that we allowed it to happen and it can bring a lot of shame and it can halt our healing. And we don't want to talk about it. And we don't understand it. And when you dive into the literature, the papers are very academic and often behind a paywall. So unless you know exactly what you're reading and understand it to that level, it's really difficult to do anything with that information. How is a child going to access that information? How is a parent? They don't have the time to sit down. They probably can't even access the paper anyway, because again, like I said, it's behind a paywall. So I wanted those conversations that people don't have that surrounds this issue and these issues to be accessible in a way that people could understand them and use them and spur more open conversations about these things. Because like I said, they're not discussed and it makes it really hard to heal and how to help people. How can a parent help their child if they don't have the information at hand? So this is why I work with them on the education side of things, because their mission is incredible and the work they do is incredible. So just being able to be a part of that is extremely rewarding. Yeah, I can definitely you know, envision that, you know, and, and that word that you just used, mission, in terms of what that organization or that nonprofit is all about. It kind of comes to mind in terms of what you're doing once again, you know, this passion driven sort of interest in in the field of understanding others, you know, in essence, and you're getting yourself involved and, and making a difference in the world. Like you said, you know, eliciting some of this, this information that you're gathering from research papers or conversations from others and making it accessible for people, allowing for people to perhaps change their behaviors in a positive manner that's going to be a benefit. And in this case for, you know, children's safety and whatnot. I couldn't think of anything more potentially rewarding than that type of work. So yeah, I, I'm getting this sense of like a lot of different layers of fulfillment in the work that you do, you know, the discovery elements of, of what you're constantly researching and finding and being driven by this, that feeling that you're getting from all of that, and then also contributing and giving back. Uh, this other question here I do have in terms of some of the challenges associated with the work that you do, I think that would also be interesting to, to hear a little bit about. We've spoken a lot about some of the rewards that you're potentially gaining, and I was just chatting about that, but what are some of the challenges or real challenges that are faced you know, with, within the work that you are involved with? So when it comes to education, you have to be in front of people. So to educate, you have to have an audience. You have to have people wanting to listen. And a lot of what I do now is public speaking or media interviews, and you're in the public eye. For example, we found each other through the, the Forbes interview that I did. And that's quite scary. Public speaking is very nerve wracking. But anytime you're in the public sphere, like the public eye, particularly now with everything being online, there's always going to be a level of trolling, no matter what it is that you're talking about, no matter what space you're in, you have a large audience base, there will be people making nasty comments. It is a horrible reality, but it's something that is a reality. And being mentally prepared for the judgment of others is tough. And I remember having a conversation with Joe, because when he wanted me to move from academia to industry, because he said, I can see you're unhappy. And I can just see that you would have love in industry and he really pushed me and I'm so grateful that he did I was so hesitant to do anything in the media I would turn down every opportunity to do anything I turned down 
yeah, doing a, a series uh, with someone who wanted to put it on Netflix. I turned down some big series on a lot of my research because I wasn't ready and I was scared because I know, and particularly being a young woman, I know that when you do anything publicly, people have a lot of nasty things to say that have nothing to do with your work. There's always appearance comments and body comments and comments on things like how you speak and what you wear. And there's nothing you can do about it because lots of people just want to put hate online. Or if you have a view that they disagree with, they can be really nasty, particularly if it's anywhere in the field of politics. People are very nasty. Oh, yeah. And obviously you get a lot of great comments too. But when you read 10 great comments and one negative one, that negative one is really going to play on. Exactly. And I felt myself subduing my progress. I knew that if I could do this media and get really good at public speaking, I could build a better career for myself. But I was so scared of that judgment of others. And like I said, for a long time, I turned down those opportunities because I was so scared. And then when I eventually did it, I remember having a conversation with Joe and saying, you know, I want to publish a book one day. I want to do all these things. How do you prepare for the hate? And he just, he was so straight and honest with me. And he said, it will come. He said, he gets hate all the time. All you have to do is know you are doing your best. If you know you're doing your best and you know you are living honestly and you are trying to help people and you are teaching information that you genuinely believe to be correct and you are flexible and willing to learn and adapt, there's nothing more you can do. People can hate and people can say mean things or nice things. His main piece of advice was never read the comments because you're not going to get anything from it. If there's something you need to know, someone who cares about you will read them and tell you. Other than that, you don't need to know because you're just going to drive yourself crazy. And he told me just to make sure that I always do my best. And as long as I believe I've done my best and make myself feel proud, then the negative judgments of others, they're going to happen either way. So you might as well just get on with it because it's not going to affect your life. And when I I got my head around that and thought, well, people are going to judge me no matter what I do. They're just going to do it more publicly if I'm more public. As long as I stick to what I believe is correct and what I believe has integrity, then that's all I can do. So learning to have a thick skin is something you have to do. It's not a positive thing, but it is something that you have to learn to have. Yeah. Some sage advice there, no doubt. Probably we need courses for this. I'm sure there are in fact out there on how to handle these things. But yeah, I think that type of advice that is being shared there probably would be a boon to anyone who's who's considering that or, or you know, is, is in a similar situation where they're trying to manage these these issues because it can be nasty, you're right. But I really like that point of just, you know, believing in what you're doing, sinking yourself into your work and and knowing that you're doing everything that you can and, and just not immersing yourself into those worlds, into those nasty comments, into those types of discussions, because it's a black hole. (laughs) You know, you can really get lost and caught up in a lot of that. And just kind of steering clear of most of it is is probably the most sensible thing to be doing and just continuing to focus on the work that you do. And as long as it's genuine and authentic, then yeah, it's probably going to be enough to, to get you through. Now, as far as how you've been able to to manage that and get through those things, what have been some of these other rewards that have opened up to you? Some of these other overtures come back around, say, on a Netflix or on some of these other programs or opportunities. I know you have the book coming out soon as well. Maybe you'd like to, to quickly speak about that. But uh, I'd love to hear some of the rewards, you know, of what you've experienced thus far in your career. Yeah, so I had started doing some podcasts and it was doing those podcasts that got uh, Chris to recognize me. I've made some great connections. I met with Robin Drake, uh, who took over the behavior analysis program when Joe left and before he then retired from the FBI. And he opened up some doors with some fantastic contacts. And the more I did, the more people wanted me to do more. And then people had seen me on podcasts and then I got asked to do some conferences. And then speaking, I eventually got asked to do more. And then I got asked to keynote. And then you're looking at, you know, this 
progression of now I get asked to do keynotes all the time. And I've recently done some big recording that I can't yet talk about, but it will be out in the next couple of months of opportunities that I never believed would be at my door. Forbes reached out to me to have an interview. And then in one interview that I did with them, they liked what I had to say and they liked how I conducted myself. And that's when they offered me the opportunity to do a much bigger interview and said that we'll be reaching out to you to do more. And now I write a lot of blogs for them and I write a lot on Apple News and each step that you take that feels uncomfortable, if you do it with enough prep and you put your heart and soul into doing it as best you can, it opens up doors because people can recognize you do a good job. And I wouldn't have any of the opportunities I have now if I hadn't taken those steps just to share information and taken every opportunity eventually that came to me. So positive things do happen when you take those opportunities because my career progressed so quickly, but that was because I had said, I'm not going to hold myself back anymore. You know, I'm just going to get on with it. I'm going to learn to be a good speaker because I want to educate. I want to kindle that fire. I really want to see the spark in others unite. And I can't do that if I don't learn how to be a speaker myself. And my book was written, it's not the book that people will expect me to write because it's not about social engineering and it's not about nonverbals. The book is about empowerment and working through shame. And I actually wrote the book because the help that I was seeking from all the other self-help books, they didn't help me because the science wasn't there. It was a lot of pseudoscience written in these books because it sells. So I turned to the academic literature to help me understand why am I so afraid? What am I hiding from? What inside of me is holding me back? And through the literature, I really learned to work through lots of things that had been in my past that I hadn't ever worked through and lots of things that were holding me back. And I wanted to communicate that science to other people. And again, this was something that I had written the book last December. I had it finished, but I was too scared to go to a publisher because I realized there's a lot of my personal stories in there and people will see me in a different way. And I wasn't ready for that. And I just needed some time to remind myself what I wrote in my book of it's your narrative. Your life is your narrative. People are going to tell it however they want to tell it. It's up to you if you want to tell your story, if you tell it and you front who you are and front what you love and front what you've done in your path and promise to be better and make active steps towards being better, no one can use you against you. And that's what I wanted to teach people because it's what I learned through science. And science to me has always been a lifeline. It's been more than just a career. When I don't understand why I've done something, I've turned to the literature. When I don't understand why my family have done something or why something happened in society, I turn to the literature to learn. And that has been a lifeline for me. Does it ever reach a point for you when you want to turn off that inquisitive mind? You know, when when it's a family relationship or it's an issue you know, that's involving the personal side and you don't want to be so analytical. Are you ever challenged in that sense? Yes. So my family will definitely agree. (laughs) Um, It was worse when I was a professor because like I said, I love to educate and it can be annoying when you just want to ask a question and not be lectured. (laughs) And my family would be like, I wonder why I did this or I wonder why this happened. And then instantly I would be like, (laughs) I can tell you why. This is what the literature, these are the theories of why this happened. And I had just gone into being a professor. So I was getting used to being a lecturer and I was really enjoying what I was doing. But every time they would phone me up to ask about something, I would go into a full-blown lecture and I would do (laughs) a walking Wikipedia. Yes, exactly. (laughs) And it's not fun to be around all the time. And I would catch myself and be like, I'm so sorry. And it got to the point they'd stop phoning me up <laughs> to talk to me because they said, well, I'm just not ready for a lecture. 
And yeah. I did that in my career as well when I moved into industry. And I slowly learned not to be that way. Sometimes I catch myself, someone yeah. will say something, and then I just go off into this big psychology <laughs> spiel. And I have to apologize. Sorry, I, I didn't mean to throw yeah. that in your face and yeah. <laughs> go over the head with psychology. So I do catch myself because I get so passionate yeah. about psychology that I just, it's like I fall into a rabbit hole yeah. and I have to learn how to pull myself out sometimes. Yeah, that's, that kind of struck me as well. I mean, oftentimes I'm speaking with a lot of different professionals and some jobs lend themselves quite easily to, to this blend between the personal and the professional. And I thought with yours in particular like that, that would be a tough one to manage, at least initially, because some of the things, some of the reasons you just outlined right yeah. there, having that ability to kind of self-recognize, okay, I'm going down that rabbit hole again right here. Okay, I got to turn this off. I got to turn it off. Don't want to drag everyone else with me. I'll just go down that rabbit hole alone where they don't have to be lectured. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. All right. Well, I do want to shift over into this last segment, a crystal ball segment. I'm going to skip over this water cooler story segment because you've shared several different stories that have been really, really engaging and really interesting. As the name implies, we're looking to the future, trends, predictions, so on and so forth. And we spoke on this point already a little bit, but it's it's returning to this idea of how technology is continually evolving. And the work that you do at Social Engineer, you know, it involves analyzing the, the latest research and data on, on how people are behaving. It, it's right on that edge, right? It's consistently on that edge of, of what's coming. And of course, we have things like AI right now and the capabilities that that offers again, to bad actors or those that are trying to protect against some of these malicious attacks on organizations or individuals. So what is all of that like for you? And what are you seeing or what are you predicting perhaps in the future as all of that kind of comes together and relates? I mean, personally, it's extremely scary to see the advancement of AI and AI threat. You know, we see now deep fakes, these videos that genuinely look so real. But professionally, the use of those kinds of technologies to steal information is unprecedented. You know, we talk about we get a phone call and I, I could before say, you know, I'm the bank. Now what I can do is I can access the voice of someone that knows you and I can use their voice. And these voice changing softwares are so realistic. There's so many cases of People phoning up, say, grandparents, and they utilize the voice of the grandson and say, I need medical bills paid, and it's horrifying. Or you have a stressed employee, and the voice on the phone sounds like the boss. They're stressed. They're being asked to do something by their boss. It isn't the boss. It's just the boss's voice. And they've learned what the boss talks like. So it's very difficult to know what to do in that situation if you don't have really good training. And there's been studies done looking at deep fakes and they've had experts say which video is real, which one is fake. And it's very difficult to identify which is the fake because the technology is so advanced. And of course, as technology advances, we get more malicious attacks. The codes being written are always outdoing the software which is why we focus on the human network, because a a code can be as advanced as possible, but it can only get in if you open the door. So instead of trying to always win just with the technology, if we train the person, we can have a better chance of, you know, that code, if it came in, it would destroy the systems. So we teach them not to let it in with the human network. But these social engineering threats the more advanced AI gets, the more advanced the threats get. And it's because it is so new, we can only do as far as science teaches us. So everything that I do is based on science. And when that science doesn't exist because it's still being tested and the field of social engineering really does lack in science because of the ethics surrounding conducting those experiments. So it's really difficult to know what to do in these situations and how best to protect, which is why Social Engineer, we partner with universities, like we've partnered with Leeds University and Arizona University to create research projects, to create the science, because AI is advancing to such a degree that we can't keep up with it 
So we have to actively now be studying it. And we are conducting experiments that we don't know what the answers are. I can't answer the question of how do you protect against all of these things because we don't know. So we're actively involved in trying to answer those questions so we can protect our clients as best as we can and educate the public how to protect themselves. Yeah, I I took away a couple of things in listening to that. I mean, one, you know, on the personal fulfillment side of things, again, you're right on the edge. It's endless. The questions that you're asking and trying to find answers to you, a lot of personal fulfillment, I, I would assume, being involved in that type of work because, you know, fighting against this and combating some of these threats you know, there, there, there's value certainly in that. But then also I get this feeling of, of fear, you know, fear as well that like it, it's tough. And as technology yeah. evolves and the speed at which it's evolving right now, the questions arise like how fast can some of these, you know, research you know, reports or experiments be done in order to, to have answers or potential solutions to, to combating some of these these issues that organizations or individuals are facing. So really, really fascinating. but. Um, Reflecting on this conversation to this point, I mean, it's been really, really engaging and I've taken a ton of your time. It's been an absolute pleasure and I can't thank you enough for coming on today. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure and I hope I didn't lecture too much. No, no, it was terrific. I think it was really, really engaging and listeners are absolutely going to love it. Well, for those interested in learning more about Dr. Morono and her work, you can do so via socialengineer.com. You can also listen to her on the Social Engineer podcast and find her on LinkedIn. For reference, all of this information, including the links, will be in the show notes. And hey, if you like today's show, please be sure to tell a friend and share. To show further support, you can rate, review, and subscribe wherever you access your podcast. And lastly, head on over to YouTube. I do have a channel over there in which you'll be able to take in video highlights of the conversation. And if you do get over there, yeah, I would really appreciate a like or subscribe. Now, finally, don't forget to join us on the next episode of Life as a, where we'll continue to explore and unearth the details of professions and the people behind them. I'm your host, Christopher Schoenwald. Until next time, stay curious about life and living. <laughs>